Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike N8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and regular listeners know we talk about writing, history, roles, and cool stuff. And today we have some history, British military word history to be exact. My guest is Ben Yagoda, who taught writing and journalism at the University of Delaware for 25 years and has written about language for many, many publications, including Slate, Rolling Stone, The New York Times Book Review, and in the Chronicle of Higher Education blog, Lingua Franca. You've heard his pieces on Grammar Girl before, but he's here today to help us talk about military words for Veterans Day, particularly words we get from the British military, because he has a long-running blog called Not One-Off Britishisms, about words that make the transition from British English to American English. And he has a book coming out in the fall of 2024 called gobsmacked the british invasion of american english and that book has a section on military slang hi ben thanks for being here with me today Amelian, it's my great pleasure great to see you you too so uh, before we jump in to the words wonderful words i'd love to hear how you got started with your passion your blog of looking at words that have come into American English from British English? Yeah, it's been a very long-standing project. I think, well, first of all, I've always been interested in language and words, as, as you can relate to, I'm sure. And I, that, I noticed it. I noticed language. I noticed words, um, big things, little things, all sorts of things. And I uh, recently retired or some years ago, retired as a professor of English at the University of Delaware. And in that capacity, I was the uh, professor for some study abroad trips specifically to London. And this would have been starting in the mid to late 1990s. And it was great. I loved it there. But of course, I noticed the different language they used. Um, So many things. I mean, there's this sort of you know, stereotype the telly and the lift and a couple of dozen others, but there's so many more terms that are different there. So I, you know, noticed those and appreciated those and, um, you know, kept the sort of informal list in my brain. But, but then the funny thing that happened was a few years later, back in the U.S., I started noticing 
Americans using some of these terms. And at first, it was just a few. Uh, the one that really comes to mind as, as, as the most dramatic one was go missing to mean someone has disappeared or a person or a thing, my wallet went missing. And when I tell young Americans that 25 years ago, that expression was just not used in America, they don't believe me because it's so common now. But it's true. It was a British expression that, yeah, around about um, 20, 25 years ago, started being used here. And, and now it's incredibly common. And so many of these um, uh, crossed my radar that I started going from my informal compilation to a blog where I would write about them. And uh, that's how Not One-Off Britishisms was formed. And of course, One-Off is an example. Um, One-Off being uh, a term meaning uh, a one-time occurrence. It's a one-off. And again, it's so common now in America that people don't believe me when I say that 20 years ago, it was not used in America at all. It was only in Britain. I remember when Gone Missing burst out of the American theme because people kept complaining to me about it. But did they? It, they did. It wasn't it. Um, there was an intern who went missing in Washington, D.C. Well, that was my theory. Yeah, Chandra Levy um, went missing. And, uh, you know, her situation was it, sometimes just uh, talked about as the kind of thing America was interested in right before 9-11. So that really dates that it was 2001. And my theory is that, you know, the, the normal American words would be vanish, disappear, which aren't the greatest words. They sound, sound like a magician's act. Um, and plus, some term had to be used so often in the accounts of this unfortunate situation that um, just to come up with another synonym, go missing, enter the equation, and it really seemed suitable and became popular and it really seemed to fit. So now it's uh, very common. Yeah. So one thing that struck me going through your book is, I mean, one, it's just fun to look at the words that have come into um, American English from British English, but so many of them came from the military and that like, surprised me. Um, and we have good words and bad words. Well, all words are good words, but words are good things and bad things. Uh, let's start with the bad things. How about, tell, how about one of my favorites is pear shape. Yeah. That, that is such a fun phrase. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's very evocative. And, and so it, it's commonly maybe always used uh, with the verb go. So something went pear shape, like go missing. Um, yeah. It just, you know, it, it, it just flattened out. And it's interesting, you know, as you say, um, a lot of these words started in the British military, which, you know, is a great repository of slang. Britain in general is, is a great repository of slang. You know, America as well. It's hard to quantify which is more. But certainly the British military, um, and there have been, you know, great books written about it, Eric Partridge and others. One of the books is called A Piece of Cake, which is a, you know, it's a good thing. Something easy as pie, pie, cake. Uh, Americans are shocked that it started in the RAF, the Royal Air Force in World War II, but it, it did. Um, go pear-shaped, interestingly, 
most of the terms that I have in the book and that I'm aware of started either roughly in World War II or World War One or even before World War One. Go pear shape. You know, my research shows that the first um, example I found, which I, I found in the in the Oxford English Dictionary, you know, the great resource, was from 1983. So this is well well past World War II, and and the quotation they have from from 83 is there were two bangs very close together. The whole aircraft shook and things went air-shaped very quickly after that. The control ceased to work. The nose started to go down. And that's a great quote for people like me and you because the the quotation has quotation marks around the phrase pear-shaped, which indicates that it was new and kind of unfamiliar at the time. So Seemingly, it started not long before 1983. And yeah, it was like most of these terms, the the use broadened out. So initially, it had to do with a pear shape, uh, an aircraft going down or something bad happening. But then it became broadened to a whole situation, just everything going bad. Or as another British expression that's not military that I write about is when people just lost the plot. And things mm. things went downhill in a hurry. I mean, when I think about going pear-shaped, I think as, you know, as I get older, maybe I get a little more pear-shaped. <laughs> That's not a good thing. Yeah, same. I mean, and and certainly when that phrase was was originated, no one had that in mind. But maybe that's one reason why it, um, you know, became popular that people... A lot of these things have multiple meanings or nuances or reverberations. So that might be one with this one. Yeah. So another great British way to describe things going badly is saying something is shambolic. Uh, Shambolic, you know, I think the origin of that is the term, the noun shambles, something in a state of shambles, just messed up, disorganized, uh, has been around for a long time. Uh, and again, it's a fairly recent one. Um, the OED's Austrian Dictionary's first citation was 1970 for shambolic, the ad- adjective. But my research, you know, n- nowadays with things like Google Books and all the great corpora uh, of, of language, many of which can be found near you in, in Utah, um, that uh, Brigham Young University. Um, uh, sponsors. I found one, um, a quote back in 1946. Um, and it, it was a, a quotation about a book related to World War II. And the quote was the author parachuted into the Calvados, Calvados, I'm not sure how to pronounce that country, on D Day in an operation which in the language of those days, would have been described as, again, quotation marks, shambolic. So that shows that the origin was not too far before then. And again, you know, it was started in the military, but it's now been applied to our government, can be described as shambolic, personal affairs, shambolic. And it led to another coined noun, omnishambles which started on the television show, the TV show in Britain, the thick of it, they, they made up that word. And, but now it's used 
to describe a thing that's just just totally messed up. (laughs) You know, since we're talking about um, military and history, you bring up Utah reminded me of a really funny, weird story that has nothing to do with words, actually. But when um, I was a professor at the University of Nevada in Reno, when I was signing my contract, there was a line in there. I had to assert that I would be willing to take up arms to defend the state as a state employee. And I, I was like, what is this about? And it turned out that when the university was founded, they were very concerned about being invaded by Utah. <laughs> And so this was put in the contract and then never taken out. You know, it's fascinating. It makes me think that if you were in the English department, uh, you would be asked to take up arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing and them being the line from <laughs> Hamlet. But I guess they weren't thinking about that. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. Um, yeah, I was looking up about shambolic because I was thinking the suffix must be olic, O-L-I-C. I was thinking vitriolic, symbolic. Alcoholic. Alcoholic. But I was really surprised when I went to the OED. It's not O-L-I-C. It's just the I-C suffix. And all those words happen to end with an L. Oh, so it's coincidence. It's a, it's a coincidence. Yeah. I was very surprised when I read that, but shambolic is shamble with the IC suffix. Uh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and um, omni shambles, um, that omni prefix, you know, is somewhat familiar. It comes up in omniscient, mm-hmm. all knowing, uh, omnipotent. Yeah. yeah, I loved the definition of omni shambles in the OED, comprehensively mismanaged. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's great. Uh, I often fantasize about the, another British word is military, uh, the boffins, the boffins in the OED, in the back offices um, coming up with these definitions, some of which are 
the phrasing is 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 just perfect and you can imagine you know the, the going back and forth between them for polishing to, to get it just right it's it's a incredibly great institution yeah well talking about the boffins let's uh let's talk about gadget what could be more american than than gadget so again very surprising um yeah, so the history of Gadget is, um, the, the term originated back in the 19th century, referring specifically to a piece of equipment used in glassmaking. Um, but in the late 1800s, uh, Navy slang picked it up. And um, it was used to mean what we would call a thingamajig or a thingamajiggy. as a great quote, um, 1886 book, uh, talking about the names of all the other things on board a ship. I don't know half of them yet. Even the sailors forget at times. And if the exact name of anything they want happens to slip from their memory, they call a chicken fixing or a gadget or a gill guy or a Timmy Nagy or a Wimwam. I mean, <laughs> these words are so great. And most of them lost to history. Um, and, and then uh, it spread to that meaning of that we use today of an all purpose device um that that can you know do surprising things in world war one that was when that first picked uh picked up and rudyard kipling had a quote from 1915 um uh talking about uh, the army they've installed decent cooking ranges and gas the men have already made themselves all sorts of handy little labor-saving gadgets which is pretty much the same way we use it yeah. And I love the fabulous detail in the draft of your book. And as I mentioned in the intro, it's coming on the fall of 24. But um, I had no idea the New Yorker had banned the word gadget. Yeah. Uh, you know, my previous book, one of my previous books about town was a history of the New Yorker. And um, their longtime editor, William Sean, had literally had a list of words that were banned. And Gadget was one of them. I think most of them were because they were, had become cliches, but he also had peculiar feelings. Another one was balding. And maybe he thought that someone was either bald or not, but balding. Um, and then another one that, that relates to British uh, isms is Americans tend to say gotten, where British people say got, like you've got very tall, the British would say, and Americans would say, you've gotten very tall. Well, the New Yorker still, to this day, ends the word gotten. And they never hmm. use gotten, they only use got. Wow. Do you know if they use gadget today? You know what? I, I don't, but we can easily find out by going to newyorker.com and searching for gadget, and it'll be one of your listeners... Great? We'll do that right now. Yeah. Hit pause. But um, yeah, I mean, the, you mentioned earlier the tools for finding out about words and history are just so much better now than they were 10 or 15 years ago. What are some of your favorite tools? Well, you know, I, absolutely so. And I sometimes say that researching language is, well, the internet is the perfect tool for researching language and vice versa. They are made for each other because. What's the problem with researching things on the internet? They're false and untrue and all that stuff. But with language, 
There is no false. It's used, if you're t- looking into the way people use words, it's always true. Now, there are false quotations and false etymologies and things like that. But if you're just looking for use of a word or term or phrase, it, it's right there. I mean, I love Google Books. Um, Google has digitized essentially every book ever uh, published, and you can search them. You can't read them all because um, some are in the uh, uh, not in the public domain yet. But you can search them, and the most brilliant tool is is a, is a, is a um, related to Google Books is called Google Books Ngram Viewer. And it's N-G-R-A-M viewer, and people can look that up. And that allows you to, it charts for you the use of any word or phrase over time in all the books that Google has digitized. Plus, the beauty part, as S.J. Perlin said, is that you can compare a lot of things, but one of the things you can compare is British and American use. So it makes these beautiful graphs showing, you know, when it started in Britain, when it started in America, often in the case of Gadget, when America outstripped Britain. And um, with, without it, I, well, I don't think I would have done this blog or this book without that tool because that's just perfectly suited for the comparison of British and American use of words. Yeah, no, it's one of my favorites too. Um, Do you know, if, wasn't there a, TV show called Inspector Gadget? There absolutely was. Do you think that played a role in popularizing the term? Uh, I think it had already become as popular as 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 it would be by the time of Inspector Gadget. Um, and that was more of a a function of it than a, than a, than a cause for the popularity. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. They would name it that because it's already familiar here. Okay, so another word about bad things is dicey. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the two British expressions that, that are kind of similar um, sound alike and have similar meanings are dicey and dodgy. And, um, you know, dicey means uh, potentially dangerous or might not work out. Um, dodgy is a, is a shady, uh, uh, character, um, uh, or situation, uh, dodgy versus dicey, but yeah, um, same with the others. Um, it was a, uh, uh, World War II Air Force slang, Royal Air Force, and the OED first citation is, uh, Neville Shute's 1950 novel, A Town Like Alice refers to a, an, a, a flyer. He made a tight, dicey turn round in the gorge with about 100 feet to spare. And it pretty quickly um, grew from strictly an air operation to the more metaphorical. Uh, so another, an earlier quote I found in Google Books was from 1945. Uh, to attack a train under those conditions was dicey with the word in quotation marks so um tricky dangerous um uh hard to do and in the u.s um it it shows up in the early 60s and then just very quickly became 
common American term. Yeah. I wondered where it came from because when I think here dicey, I think of, you know, chopping vegetable, dicing you know, food. I hadn't thought of it, um, what the origin was, but I've got to say rolling the dice. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And that, and then what and it turns out that dicing food comes from cutting them up in the shape of dice. I don't, can't remember any time when I cut piece of diced a piece of food in the shape of a of a dive uh it's always like much smaller but it totally right. makes sense so that would be the origin yeah yeah so you mentioned um fake etymologies earlier and uh that applies to one of the words on our list today which is posh so we're moving on to the good things but there's a there's a story probably half the audience has heard but actually isn't accurate. So <laughs> tell us about Posh. It's so, um, you know, it's like the last line of Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. Isn't it pretty to think so? It, it's such an appealing story um, that you could see, like a lot of the urban legends we encounter today, how it would just catch on and people would believe it. But so Posh, as listeners I'm sure know, means fancy, um, expensive, and, and so forth. And uh, the story uh, that actually occurred as early as 1932, a researcher named Bonnie Taylor Blake came up with this uh, uh, 1932 citations. And um, the, the OED uh, gives that, so common is it, and says it's false, but the uh, uh, they say a popular explanation still frequently repeated is that the word posh derives from the initial letters of the phrase port outward starward starboard home, P-O-S-H, with reference to the more comfortable because cooler and more expensive side for accommodation on ships going between Britain and India. So it's it's such a, a cool story. So yeah, that that makes sense. Um, again, I can imagine someone sort of making it up and putting it out there for the world and rubbing their hands with glee when it got adopted. But um, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, the OED, which is great on etymology as well as many other things, says origin unknown. So no one really knows what the what the true origin is is um it did appear as early at, it, it did uh, show up in world war one in the british army in world war one uh there's a 1914 book called the british army from within um it says the cavalryman makes a point of wearing quotation mark posh clothing um and helpfully explains posh being a term to designate superior clothing or articles of attire other than that issued by conforming to regulations. So it was around in 1914 where it came from. Still don't know. Nobody knows. Yeah, it's just so funny because when I hear the word, I think of posh spice from the Spice Girls to think of soldiers on the front using the word. And certainly posh spice, um, you know, uh, Victoria Beckham uh, was nicknamed posh because she seemed to have a kind of fancy way about her and i'm sure that that popularity that group in the 90s um 
led to even more currency of the German U.S. after that. Yeah. And then I imagine that posh people have cushy lives. And uh, cushy is another word. Nice one. Nice segue. Uh, so again, um, these historical ones are interesting because like so many dicey and and a piece of cake gadget, they seem so American. Um, a, a lot of the, the words I write about in the blog and the book um, come from suggestions from readers. I got, I, I would imagine you would have a similar experience of having great readers uh-huh. and, and great commenters. <laughs> I mean, I think people are interested in language um, or tend to be good people. Um, there's not a lot of, or any, hate speech or anything like that on my blog and just a lot of people who are really interested and a lot of British people who are gobsmacked by the fact that British terms have come into America when they've always heard that American terms are corrupting British English. So they're amused by it. Um, so I think a reader must have said, look into Cushy. And um, the origin of that is is pretty clear. There's words in Persian and Urdu that connote pleasure or convenience that um, are, are sound like cushy. And the definition is um, of a job situation that is undemanding, easy, requiring a little or no effort, et cetera. Um, and th- this emerged uh, in the late 19th century before World War I. Um, and uh, OED has this quote from the Penny Illustrated paper uh, which is, he told me that I had got into a cushy quotation mark and then parenthesis, easy, defining it, uh, true. So it's just a perfect quote because it, it shows you that it's new and it gives the definition. And um, uh, Green's Dictionary of Slang, which is another wonderful resource Jonathan Green has put online for free, his life's work of uh basically doing the OED of slang, and it's just a wonderful resource. Um, he has a quote from 1912 referring to cushy jobs, which is, you know, the way we say it 100 plus years later. Um, the particular British thing was in World War I, um, and this, you, this meaning is not used anymore, um, OED describes it as of, of a wound. So describing a wound that is serious enough to necessitate withdrawal from active duty, but not life-threatening. So that's called a cushy wound. And people with such wounds that take them out of battle, but don't threaten their lives, were actually referred to as cushies. So it was referred to the person with that, with that cushy, cushy wound. Oh, wow. Now, were people who weren't wounded called cushies for other reasons? Or do we just know about the wounded people? No, I think the term cushy for a person was only on that, um, only in that one particular context. So, but it was most often used to refer to cushy jobs, cushy assignments and things like that. Fascinating. Is it related to the word cushion? I think if people call yes. cushy jobs sitting on cushions. Uh, I correct myself. So I'm, uh, the OED says cushion and cushiony are etymologically distinct. So it seems like it's a coincidence and probably that meaning, which clearly relates to, to the cushy meaning, uh, led to the 
strength in the popularity of the, of the word. Mm-hmm. If they're not related, people make that connection and like the word. Yes. Yeah. Great. Well, I have one last military word. Let's talk about kit. I had heard some of the uses, but not all. I'd heard, I've heard of kitting out, getting kitted out, but I had not heard of a piece of kit. Yeah, in, it's a British military one. And of all the words we've discussed, this is the one that is, um, has the lowest level of popularity and frequency in the U.S. Um, I mean, we say things like, uh, and they all come from the same origin. So U- U.S. will say a drum kit or a kit to make a model, a model kit. Um, but, but the British use it much more broadly. Uh, the, the kit could be the, the uniform for a sports team. Mil- it started the military as a piece of kit or equipment. And as you said, the verb kitted out, um, you know, originally meant to put on your uniform now is often used to mean kind of dressed up or maybe even excessively so. And, you know, uh, you asked about my sources. The other one that I go to maybe too much is the New York Times, um, both because it's so searchable, completely searchable back to 1865 when it started. And it also is, you know, for journalists and and other sorts of writers, it's a, a, a gauge of what terms and expressions are being used. Um, so New York Times writers have started to use kitted out in a piece of kit. Probably, you know, um, among the moms and dads, the cookout, not so much. And a lot of these terms uh, are used by what the Brits call the journos and the chattering classes first. And then sometimes they filter down like a go missing or dicey to just regular people. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you for being here with us to discuss the military words. We'll have you back next year when your book Gobsmacked is actually out. But it was wonderful to have this discussion today. Um, Explain to people how they can find your blog or wherever else you'd like them to find you. Thanks. Uh, well, benyagoda.com is my website. And if you just search not one-off Britishisms or even Britishisms, it should pop up pretty, uh, pretty quickly. So thank you so much. It's is really uh, a delight to talk to you. So thank you, Brad. You too. Thanks, Brad. Bye. Bye.